Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small, a podcast about brand development, entrepreneurship, and innovation in the modern world. In this episode, I'm joined by Matthew Mueller of Not Standard. Listen as Matthew shares stories from his extensive background in building tech startups to now creating Not Standard as the fastest growing menswear brand in the US. With their mission of accessible and high quality clothing, Not Standard strives to craft their clothing to unique shape, size, and preferences. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Starting Small. Today, I'm joined by Matt Mueller of Not Standard. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Cameron. This is gonna be fun. Of course. So I'd like to start out with your upbringing. Uh, where did you grow up and what would you say your childhood was like? I was and still am, uh, now with a nice veneer over me, a nerd. <laughs> I, uh, I grew up in the Washington DC area. I uh, was born in Alexandria, which is now a very nice neighborhood. Wasn't as much fun when I was growing up. Mm. I was the least popular kid uh, in my elementary school. So I got really good at things like electrical engineering and riding my bike to Radio Shack. Yeah. And I am really dating myself and painting a lovely picture right now. <laughs> but uh, my parents, unbeknownst to me, um, moved us into the uh, the radius for a school called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. Okay. Which if you Google it, I don't know if we're still the number one school. I'll, I'll go toe to toe with anybody in the comments. <laughs> but I definitely believe we were. Uh, I didn't know I applied to get in, and I was very much looking forward to spending my four years of high school getting beaten up by the football team. Oh, my gosh. I instead became the least popular nerd at the nerdiest school in the country. <laughs> so I had a, a very a very weird upbringing. Yeah, so what in, what kind of brought you along this path and the, the interest of, say, just learning how to – innovate in different ways like that, not getting into athletics. Was your parents a large inspiration on this or what was that like? Uh, my parents did definitely did not inspire me to not get into athletics. I did play soccer so I could run and yeah. I could be lanky. Those were my top two skills. And <laughs> in, uh, in high school, I, I needed a way to kill time. You get pretty resilient when you get bored. Yeah. I got into programming at which point I got way too far into programming. Uh, I wrote a paint program. I wrote image compression software. Wow. I locked myself in a room and wrote video games. I uh, My claim to fame uh, at TJ was you have to choose a senior project. Mm. And I chose the computer design lab at the time because it would be the easiest. Yeah. And in the process, I uh, found out that your yearbooks don't usually have spring sports or spring activities or anything like that. And I really wanted the lab to buy a CD burner so I could make mixed CDs. Yeah. So I convinced them that my senior project would be, I'm going to make a CD yearbook, the world's first CD yearbook. <laughs> and a friend of mine at the time had the brilliant idea because we were struggling. What do you charge for this thing? It's like a dollar a disc to press these things back then. You can't charge more than five bucks. He's like, well, we're graduating yeah. in 1997. So charge $19.97. Wow. 400 people in the class. Everybody bought one, obviously. Guilt tripped your parents into it. We made a good amount of money. Uh, it was supposed to be donated back to the school. And my teacher at the time who was running the lab was leaving. And she said, just, just keep it. Yeah. So you get the entrepreneurial bug when you need to find money. You have time. And people are willing to buy things from you. So we got pretty good at it. Wow. We won't go too far into making fake concert tickets or fake IDs. <laughs> everybody has a story on. 
But let's just say right around my high school years, Ticketmaster switched to barcodes. Yeah. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm curious, um, just going back to that CD burner, um, for reference, 1997, how, if you could share how much roughly were you making at that point, CD burning? Uh, well, the, the yearbook itself, I mean, we made, you know, 20 bucks times 400 people. So wow. eight grand, that's, that's that wasn't bad. It cost about, it cost about 2000 bucks to buy the CD burner and then go get back in the day, you would make a gold press master disc. Yeah. And then you're getting all of the art put on top of it. I'm a high school student. I'm I belong to BMG music records. I get CDs in the mail at the time. Yeah. And so the coolest thing in the world is I'm going to have a CD printed like the ones that I'm actually listening to that I buy at Tower Records. Yeah. And that was amazing. Minimum order volume, however, was 2000. To this wow. day, I still have hundreds of these. <laughs> <laughs> I've moved them to Dubai and back amongst houses. I still wow. I can't get rid of them. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. So I saw you went up to um, the University of Virginia then. I'm curious, what led you to study there? And then what did you end up studying? So Thomas Jefferson, this high school, is in Virginia. Yep. Um, Virginia charges differently based on if you're in state or out of state. Yep. So hypothetically, if you have a nerd school with 400 people and your in-state school is looked at, you know, top 20 and everybody loves this school and it's four grand a year and you have to pay for school. Yeah. Yeah. You uh, you just kind of coast your way in. So <laughs> I went to college with 120 of my closest friends. Wow. I roomed with a kid from my high school. Okay. There were other people from my high school in my building. Yeah. They were everywhere. Wow, that's incredible. So what did you end up studying there at Virginia? Uh, I went into the engineering school. Okay. Um, they actually took a lower GPA, so it was easier to get in. A few friends of mine thought they would be clever and do architecture or something, and they didn't get in, and I'm a much worse student. So that sucked for them. But uh, once you're in, you can transfer wherever you want. Um, I, I transferred into the McIntyre School of Commerce, the undergraduate business school there. Okay. And if you couldn't tell... Trying to find ways to get money <laughs> became an obsession in high school, a necessity in college, and yeah. kind of where I am today. I love it. So, yeah, just the obsession of always trying to innovate, create new products, or resell. I'm curious, you went into engineering school. What did you do postgraduate, once you graduated as well, uh, career-wise? Well, I started my first startup um, right after I left the engineering school for the business school. Okay. Um, we were... It was super fun. It was the these guys had come in. They were the number one competitor to Amazon, and they'd come and spoke to us. I was like, I can do what they're doing. So we made a little comedy writing website. Uh, it was called Get the Worm. Mm. The original idea was I had overslept and missed two finals. So it was a wake-up call website, <laughs> and we got a telephony system, put a server in our apartment, and had wake-up calls going. That cost money. Yeah. And no one's going to pay for a wake-up call as a college or a high school student. <laughs> so how do we make money? All right. Well, we'll get articles, which means we can get people to the website, which means we'll get advertising. Yeah. Advertising's not paying the bills. There's got to be a better way to do this. <laughs> so our claim to fame was we came up with a new method of advertising and patented it. Yeah. It was called Worm Find. Early Bird gets the worm. We stick this little icon. And if you come to our website and you go hunting for it, you get a cookie turned on. Then you land on Best Buy or someplace else, 
And you get a little pop-up next to the regular Best Buy website that says the worm likes to watch movies. Huh. And we had buried it in the VCR section, again, dating us. <laughs> but Best Buy pays the 75 cents to drop a person right on the right spot of a page. But more importantly, they had to read through the website to get there. Wow. So it's still applicable today. Uh, we never really resurrected it after the dot-com bust when we got spanked. But it was a it was a fun company. We it was ninety nine two thousand, uh, and I immediately joined a company that some other people from my high school had started doing digital publishing. Wow. We made uh, hyper personalized email newsletters back in two thousand. Uh, that wasn't done back then. The server power was yeah. very hard to come by, and we were doing five hundred thousand different emails to five hundred thousand different people. That email software. Went through a ton of different things. There are lots of newsletter companies. You got you know, MailChimp and everything are the descendants of those. Yep. Um, we did our claim to fame back in the day was that we were we were the first people to take catalogs and magazines and actually put them online and let you physically fit the page. Wow. So that was done in Macromedia Flash at the time before it got bought. Okay. Over the holidays in my old bedroom at my parents house zero monetary value to that cool little feature by the way but <laughs> it was our claim to fame and, and we put a bunch of digital catalogs up and then linked them back to e-commerce stores which again was a lot back then so we did all right um ironically that that email newsletter software and the architecture all behind it kind of got picked up and professionalized and sold much better than we could sell it by the younger brother of one of my co-founders Wow. And my co-founder was Ben Hallen and his younger brother, Ed Hallen, founder of Clavio. Oh, my goodness. So a lot of Clavio users on this speak, podcast, for sure. Exactly. So I'm, I'm a little ticked when I, I had to go back and speak at the comm school. He had spoken a week before in one of the classes of one of our other founders. Yeah. And so he just casually walks in and drops. Wow. I mean, we just raised at a nine billion valuation. Wow. And I'm like. I make everybody look cooler. I mean, I, I still have a real life here. I'm a real person. So. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough act to follow when one of the guys who's a younger brother and an intern just. Yeah, no, for sure. I'm curious then. So at forward. this time, hyper personalized emails at scale like this. It's, I mean, to the listeners out there, they would refer to this as like really the early days of like AI. How, how are you doing hyper personalized at scale? We weren't doing it in anything other than you tell us what you want. And when people yeah. create the content, they tag it. Got it. And then we build the email based on that. Got it. So it's it's rules. It's not smart in Got that it. sense. But at that point, making a blast email in the days of AOL was ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Making it actually get read was impossible. Mm. So this was cutting edge and game changing. Yeah. You know, variable replacement, your first name in the subject line. Oh my gosh, sure. how did you do that? So for sure. No, that's huge. Myself again. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So the early days right here of not standard that you mentioned, you met your co-founders kind of through this email um, startup as well in Clavio. What, what, what surface is this, especially getting into clothing and menswear coming from really this tech and engineering background? Oh, we, we have to take a little bit of a jaunt before we get to not standard. So yeah. that, uh, that tech uh, publishing company, we kind of got acquire hired uh, into Gannett. Okay. And I had such a bad taste in my graduated at this point. I was actually teaching a couple of classes as a kind of a guest lecturer here and there uh, back at UVA and at Darden. 
on digital marketing of all things, because we're the only people that actually were doing it around then. Yeah. Everybody else was Silicon Valley. Um, I needed a job. I needed to not have that much stress. So I applied for my only job I've ever applied for at a place called the advisory board company in Washington, DC as a, just a run of the mill young salesperson. Yeah. 24. I was the worst salesperson in the history of this public company. Um, <laughs> and they are, there's some very good ones. So I got my butt handed to me. <laughs> I closed one deal in 11 months and that one closed before I officially started. So <laughs> it was bad. Um, they, however, had bought a company that did staffing and scheduling for about $5 million out of Oregon. Okay. And if you went into it, it was written in code 10 years before on Microsoft Access 97 by one guy wearing Hawaiian shirts sitting on a chair in Portland. <laughs> it was junk. Yeah. So uh, the the I quickly became the first technical director in the company's history because they did healthcare and sales and had no idea what to do with this thing. Oh, man. Um, so we got pretty good at healthcare IT and I got pinged by one of the advisors of the company to the CEO at the time to help with the IT planning on Harvard's Hospital Medical School mm. in Dubai. Wow. So flew back and forth a bit and they said, why don't you go over and do the hiring and select the software and spend the tens of millions of dollars that we need to get this thing off the ground. So I flew <laughs> over there, did that. And in 2008, the crash happens. A quarter of the world's cranes in Dubai at the time, and they all point towards Mecca on the same day mm. and shut down. Wow. So over you know, all of Dubai shuts down. I ended up as the number two in a, in a healthcare software startup over there that I had actually hired to be one of my vendors. Wow. They brought me in and we brought up a whole bunch of hospitals from 1970s level technology in the Middle East to affectionately 2005, maybe. Yeah. Using consultants and Western software and things like that. Yep. However, my wife at the time really wanted to go to the horse races. And I was your typical American with my dress cargo pants and my tennis shoes and my polo shirt. That's not cutting it. No. So underhanded gift of a custom suit for Valentine's Day. And I took another friend of mine who was visiting in town. I was like, all right, let's go down into the depths of Dubai and find out where this stupid tailoring shop is and see if this <laughs> whole thing's a scam. 100% sure it was a scam. <laughs> it was not. I was an idiot. Got this first dress, this suit, and... Your life kind of flashes before your eyes because it's an entire industry you didn't realize existed. Yeah. I'm a nerd. I grew up with nerds. We are not social. <laughs> Fashion is a scam. Uh, you know, social skills are a scam. Sales is a scam. You don't know any of these things. They don't even understand what emotions are at that point. <laughs> I learned the hard way how wrong I was. Yeah. And that became a, a staple of people coming to visit in Dubai. We'd get, we'd get them something made. We'd go into the desert and go on a yacht, go to bottomless brunch. All fun. How do I get you to bring me something back for the holidays, Matt? How can I get my friend to get something made? How do you take measurement? Yeah. I have no idea. Let's figure out how this thing works. So we started peeling back all the layers and put in place a little website for fun. Mm. That took off. Groupon in Manhattan, which was huge around 2010, 2011, they yep. reached out to us in 2011 and said, let's do a Black Friday deal. This is right around the time when that woman had 5,000 cupcake orders in London and yeah. just was buried. That was us. Black Friday, 
selling highly discounted custom suit and shirts <laughs> and doing six hours in the middle of the night in random warehouse tailoring shops across Dubai trying to fulfill orders. Oh, my God. So it was torch your credit and have this money that you owe chasing you everywhere. Yeah. Or go raise money, digitize this whole process and fulfill these orders. We chose quit our jobs, go raise money. Wow. And essentially started in 2012 with our first AI and digitized everything from scratch. Wow. If you couldn't tell by now, nerd. <laughs> so there is a fashion industry out there. These people do know what they were doing. Yeah. I was and still am today, not one of them. <laughs> so whenever we ran into a problem, we would develop our way out of it with tech. We ended up with a lot of amazing technology and yeah. most of it was absolutely the wrong answer to the problem. <laughs> so that's been a 12 year ride that AI is still training itself every night to beat itself and powers all of the garments we make today. Wow. Um, typically when you make something custom, you gotta get it altered or remade 30% of the time on your first order. Cause it's wrong. Yeah. Which is where we started, which was a nightmare. Yeah. And it's today we're at less than 1% and we are the only incredible. ones that can do that. So, We've, we've grown over the years. We're all over the place now. We're in Nordstrom. We also, in COVID, were forced to split our company into the tech side. Yeah. And before then, we were naive. We're awesome. We're better than everybody else. <laughs> we're going to take PE money, and we're going to open 50 stores. We're not going to give our tech to anyone because we're better than everybody. Yeah. A little humbled uh, when you make clothes for people going out and going to weddings and going to restaurants when COVID hits. Yeah. They're rough. <laughs> so we started licensing out our tech when Brooks Brothers went bankrupt. Uh, mm. We built, rebuilt a custom business for them mm. under our own umbrella from scratch. Nordstrom said, we've lost all of our good people. We can't train everybody again. Yeah. Surely there's a better way to do this. What won't screw it all up? We're like, well, here you go. Yeah. So over time, we've built a tech business now that has a little over 100 stores and 1,000 people on it. And we're taking a small chunk of everybody else's sales too. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far behind Matthew's entrepreneurial journey. I'd like to pause and say thank you to this episode's mid-break sponsor, Rosendahl Design Group. Looking to elevate the aesthetics of your home? Look no further than Rosendahl Design Group, one of Denmark's top design houses with a legacy spanning two generations. Rosendahl Design Group is all about rediscovering classics and advancing sustainable designs all while collaborating with leading designers. They've been bringing Danish design icons to life, making high-quality design accessible to everyone. As someone who personally cherishes interior elegance, I've resorted to one of Rosendahl Design Group's portfolio brands, HomeGuard, for one of my tabletop base needs. They're the perfect complement to any table arrangement throughout the home. With activities worldwide, Rosendahl Design Group is your passport to Sandai Chick home decor. Discover the perfect blend of timeless classics and modern sustainability. Transform your living spaces with Rosendahl Design Group because beauty begins at the home. Make sure to check them out at rosendahl.com. That's rosendahl.com and enjoy the rest of the episode. Kind of take us through that first user experience. So you created this AI, they're going to get this custom tailored suit. You had to fulfill mm -hmm. these orders, massive order at the beginning. What does that look like from a user who's like a, a new customer looking on the website? What did that look like? It actually doesn't look that different than it does today. Okay. Uh, the graphics were hilarious. <laughs> um, the models were myself and my co-founder with our heads cut off. So it was embarrassing. <laughs> but you would still go in and we thought that, and we had taken our friends through, the choices were so cool. Mm. 
But what we did not realize is there's a big difference between someone showing you all the choices and making recommendations yeah. and you dropping someone in the middle of a website and say, figure it out. Yeah. We learned that over the years, but we gave everybody all of these different options down to a color wheel of whatever you wanted to do and then follow the instructions in the videos on how to measure. That was way back then. We use an app for it now, um, which is phenomenally accurate. But when it all comes together, you would still get a garment and mm -hmm. you try it on. And the fundamental reason we did it is we had to have smarter people than us tease this out of us later and even our own clients. It's the same reason that I was stunned when I did it the very first time. Yeah. It is a completely different feeling. You are confident. Mm. And for a nerd who doesn't know how to dress to become confident by one single piece of clothing, yeah, it was a life hack that was too good to pass up. So yeah. we sell that now. That's what we do. They, You stand up straighter. You feel better. You, you look into a room and you look around at everybody else and you go, yeah, I'm the best one here. Yeah. It doesn't suck. Yeah. Incredible. So in those early days, how did, uh, I mean, you had that, that deal with Groupon start out. So how did you acquire new customers from there? What was the marketing? I mean, so, so early success and quick, what, what was behind that? Yeah. Uh, digital marketing, Google. Yeah. Um, I still have the towel that Google was kind enough to give me in 2000 when our digital publishing company became one of their very first Google ad beta clients. Wow. So way back in the day. Uh, so we knew how all this stuff worked, and that's where we got all of our clients. Mm. Um, we did a bunch of Groupon and Gilt, but you get a lot of bottom feeders in there. Yeah. So as we started moving to the high end and learning how this whole industry works, in the U.S. there's distributors, and you have to be trusted. Someone like Xenia or Laura Piana is not going to let you run amok with their name. Yeah. Unless you're an American dude living in Dubai, and everybody knows Dubai is rich, so of course we're going to let them do it. Yeah. Their mistake, look where we are now, but we were able to do and work with a bunch of brands and fabrics and things like that that we never should have had access to. Mm. And so to this day, we we moved high end where there's a lot of Indochinos and those kinds of things on the low end. Yeah. And because it's high end, we had to add stores. Because mm. your desire to go online and make your first custom garment from a website that you've never heard of for $3,000 is not that high. Yeah. It certainly wasn't back then. The confidence is tough. So coming into a store that you feel like you can spend $10,000 in, oh, not bad. Yeah. And we're no inventory. We don't have to be on Fifth Avenue because you make an appointment through the website. Yeah. So that's how we grew. Today, it's because everything fit and because of that feeling you, that the clients get the first time, yep. we have about a 65% repeat rate in the first year. Mm. So we survived even in COVID based off of our repeat clients yeah. and word of mouth referrals, which is still 40% of our business. It's incredible. Uh, yeah. Taking some of that feedback then, what, what would you say is that main demographic? Um, cause you, I mean, you, you skew, you skew upper quality for sure. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, what would you say? So I used to think, again, we started this in Dubai, so we were a little off. <laughs> I used to think it was guys with yachts and champagne. Um, <laughs> It is not. It is actually the the kind of the director level, VP level, 36 to 42 year old. Yeah. But scrappy. Mm. Like you have drive that somebody else doesn't. So we went from doing these photo shoots of literally a yacht in Miami with a drone with a guy drinking champagne on it <laughs> to renting a two car L train in Chicago. 
Yeah. And showing like the nicest dressed guy taking the L train in Chicago to work. Yeah. Because that's actually our client. It's mm. the one that is willing to try a little bit harder than everybody else yep. to be the best. Yeah. It's not the one that's already the best and sitting on a pile of cash. Yeah. Interesting. So it, it was it was neat to figure that out. Totally. Ironically, that's what we were. We had no business being in this industry and we figured it all out the hard way. We were willing to bang our heads against the wall. So it shouldn't yep. be that surprising that that's what our client base is too. Yeah, for sure. Looking at us, maybe some of your direct competitors, what would you say to the listeners as the main differentiators, especially today, how much you guys have evolved? So if you're looking at custom, I would say this to everybody. Yeah. You're not going to go out and take your Sunday and try and find a different custom place to shop. Yeah. That's like, I'm going to use my weekend to try and find a new dentist. For sure. No one does that. <laughs> so versus other custom places, we, our, our fit rates and our repeat rates and our return rates are just an order of magnitude or two better. Yeah. And that's why we're selling our technology now. Uh, the experience and the relationship that our clients have with their salespeople is the reason they stay. Yeah. Hands down. So yeah. We've got every celebrity under the sun that pays us cash and I randomly find them in our database sometimes. Yeah. And it's because they trust and they're confident in what their stylist says they should wear. Mm. And if you took the stylist away, they would freak out. We built QR codes into our jackets that wow. if you scan, we'll show you the instructions that your stylist said you should wear this with the following things in your closet. That's awesome. And it's different for every garment. So that's because I didn't know what to do either. That's where <laughs> this originally came from. But the real competition we have is similar to what we had 10 years ago. And it's if you can go into a Nordstrom and buy a shirt off the rack, mm. you do not need to wait three weeks yeah. and you don't want to sit down for 30 minutes. Yeah, it's easier the second time or the third time, but that's what most people do. Yeah. So our competition is fast fashion and laziness. Yeah. But if you're that scrappy person that wants to try a little bit harder and is willing to go for the best. Yeah our client and that's why those people are the ones who buy from us the most because yeah. they're willing to spend 30 minutes to be better than everybody else for sure so you mentioned uh kind of since covid that's when the licensing really like amped up i'm curious mm -hmm. looking at today if you could share what kind of percentages are like licensed technology that you guys have in comparison to direct -to consumer through your own website as well it's a it's a little bit like a freight train or five or six freight trains strapped together we didn't start yeah. doing it until about 18 months ago okay um but it is actually through full SaaS. Like our CFO earlier today forwarded me an email like, look, we got paid from a client. We have no account management with whatsoever. It's very nice to just get some pretty serious royalty checks. That's awesome. Um, this year, it's probably about 15 or 20 percent. OK, so it's not a ton. Yeah, but that's because we've been we started with. 10 doors at Nordstrom will end with 100 this year. Yeah. And next year, we'll have all 100 the entire year. So it's going to be a little bit more like half and half. Yeah. Um, and we're bringing some pretty massive brands. If you were to write the 10 biggest brand names you can think of for clothes for guys, at least half of those that come to your mind, we're already doing rollouts with. That's so incredible. It, you start with a test because most of these businesses are like, this thing's a disaster. I hate this business. Yeah. I have to do it because some really, really rich clients demand it, but I prefer to never deal with it again because it's too many mistakes and things go wrong. Yeah. I agree. That was our lives for the last 10 years. <laughs> we just happened to figure out how to do it. And now we are bringing everybody else up and 
hopefully I can go sit next to, to Ed Hallen and say, see, I ate ramen for a while and did it too. Yeah, so. love it. I love it. Well, I conclude each episode with this. I mean, you have such an extensive background, so young too. It's very rare that we've had that with some of our guests. Um, if you can share one piece of advice with an aspiring entrepreneur, maybe something you've learned or regret along the way, what would you say that would be? If I could go back, I would tell myself not to fake it, mm. like not to fake your business model, not to overlook something that is a core tenet of entrepreneurship. You got to kind of bust through a barrier and ignore some things. Yeah. But even today, if I could go back and tell myself 12 years ago, this is how hard it's actually going to be. Mm. It's not actually worth it. It's worth it today going forward. Yeah. But we blew $40 million figuring out mm. how to make custom work. And I would tell myself, here's a couple of stocks you should buy right around now, 2008, you'll be a little better off. <laughs> so if you're honest with yourself and you test everything, talk to your clients and listen to what's really out there. It might not be the answer you're looking for, but you're better off knowing sooner rather than later. Mm. Amazing. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. And to the listeners out there, make sure to check out Not Standard at notstandard.com. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Starting Small. If you would, leave a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow Starting Small on social platforms and make sure to subscribe to our email so you don't miss anything on Starting Small Summit, more podcast episodes, or our online blog. You can find that link in this description.